Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to interesting people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser, and this is The Stick Up. Dick Gatto has been described as a colourful underworld figure. His story was depicted in the TV crime show Underbelly. These days, Mick Gatto is more well known for his charity work and his work with the trade unions. Mick Gatto, welcome to The Stick Up. Thanks, Russell. Mate, you're a hard-to-get man to do these podcasts, and um, I just want to start, mate, by I, I know that you're, not, you're a bit reluctant to do these sort of things, but, mate, it's a dead-set blessing to have you here. Thanks, I appreciate that. Look, I uh, don't see a lot of upside in doing them, but, you know, I've sort of looked at what you were doing, and uh, I'm happy to support you. I think you're doing a great thing. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Tell us a bit about your childhood. I grew up in South Melbourne. I was a villain uh, until I was about 15 started boxing, but uh, worked in the markets and uh, left school at a very young age, grade, or actually Form 1, started Form 1, I got thrown out, and actually my father was told whatever school I go to in Victoria, they'd throw me out, so I was forced to work, and I started working in the markets and uh, loved that, and then found my way into boxing. And uh, my life turned around uh, from there. I, I, like, I've seen, you know, from like I, I spent 23 years in jail and I've seen a lot of lives. I, I, I say this and I don't say it, you know, to insult people in religion, but I think boxing saved more lives of troubled kids than Jesus. Look, I've got to be honest with you. I, uh, <clears throat> I was a villain up until I took up boxing and uh, I always had the attitude that no one could beat me in a fight and all that sort of thing. And and I started the box and I got hit in the head a few times and whatever and seen a few stars and, and it sort of taught me a lot of respect. I've got to be honest, it was the best thing I've ever done. And humbling, isn't it? It humbles you. It a is great, humbling. And great equaliser. Yeah. I was talking to Mark Burris and, and, and he was talking, he's a passionate boxing fan too and he, he reckons there's a lot of similarities between boxing training and business. Yeah, he could very well be right. I mean, it's it's a fight. <laughs> and, the, and the discipline and the, the dedication and the sacrifice, and that, you know, that's what he was sort of talking about. That's the hardest part, and uh, I've got to be honest, that was my problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, sort of tying myself down. I was very keen when I first started, and then towards the end I got a bit slack, and I sort of got involved in the gambling and all that. I loved your book. I, I read your book when I was in jail, but I'm, with technology I got to listen to it recently again. So, well. Thanks. And, you know, a lot of your own life is no dissimilar to mine, you know what I mean? I got in trouble and that for a young fella. Growing up where you did, who were your influences as, as a young fella? Um, <clears throat> I loved Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Uh, I loved him and I used to sort of live and breathe everything about him. And I just one day I was hoping that I could be like him. But, um, like I said, I wasn't that keen in the end. But, yeah, he, he was one of my main influences that I, I really loved. He backed himself. Yeah. Didn't he? You yeah, back he, yourself too, Mick, don't you? Well, to a certain degree, but I mean he put boxing on the map. Yeah. He put he put large purses on the map. I mean, fighters were getting nothing prior to him doing what he done and now they get, you know, just mega dollars for a fight. Growing up around South Melbourne, you're starting to get into trouble, you know, mate, um like 
What's going through a young fella's head? What did you want to be? Look, as a kid, you really didn't sort of think about the future much, you know, you just sort of lived day by day. Yeah. It was pretty rough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just used to, you know, play the pokey, or the, they weren't pokies, they were pinball machines and things of that nature when I was a kid, I was addicted to them. Yeah. And I'd do anything I could to get money to play them. So you like the punt. You like the your chance taker from a young age. I was. Yeah, my father was a mad gambler too. So I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Same with me, man. I I, I, used, to, I used to bet on anything when I was a young fellow. And what were the consequences of that sort of the gambling and that? The consequences were that that you do silly things to to support the habit. You know, like you know, go and rob people or do stick ups or yeah. or whatever you know and I mean you'd be familiar with that if you, you had that sort of um, um, urge you know you'd do anything to satisfy it in, in your book and it's like you've had that easy money easy come easy go approach to money I've, I've had that all my life I've got to be honest I, uh, um, I've always had that way about me and I don't know where I got it from to be honest but I've always I've always felt bad for the underdog yeah. and I've always supported it uh, even as a young kid, you know, if, if someone was down on their luck or whatever, you know, I'd sort of try and help them, you know. It's just something that is inside me, I guess, you know. I've heard some amazing stories of your generosity, you know. I've heard from, 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 from long and far, heard amazing stories of your generosity. Like, where does that come from? Is it something that you witnessed as a kid or...? I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think it's probably growing up in tough times. I mean, I had nothing when I was a kid. My parents had nothing. They were very hard hard-working people that, that, that sort of worked their butt off to support us and put us through school and whatever. And I don't know, I think just growing up, whenever things fell into line for me, I'd like to share it, you know? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's empathetic, compassionate, shows a lot about your character. Hmm. Like, from what ages did you start st- sort of start getting into trouble? Probably from about 11, 12 years of age. Yeah. You know, I used to be caught driving without a licence and things like that. And, and, and them days there, it was a bit different to these days. I mean, the police used to give you a foot up the bum. And they'd, they'd ring my father. My father would come and belt the shit out of me in front of him. They'd all start laughing and I never got charged. And then they'd be down at the market getting fruit off him or whatever. Yeah. And that was the way it worked as a kid. It was a bit different to these days. You can't do that anymore, can no, they? No. So I was, I was pretty young when I was getting into a bit of mischief. And, and like I said, 90% of the time it was to support my habit, which was gambling on these silly machines, you know, and... Uh, I'd do anything to sort of get money and to go and play them, you know. One thing I've noticed about in through for your book and for everything you do, when you're good for something, you put your hand up. Yeah, look, you know, I uh, yeah, I like to sort of take try ownership. and do what I say. Yeah, yeah. I say I'm going to do something. I want to, I want to, you know, do my best to make sure that I do it. I know a lot of people that know you, and they they talk about this guy that's got these principles, ethics, like you just said. You said if you say you're going to do something, you, they say you know you can bank on mixed word. You know, well, that's nice to know. I, I, I sort of pride myself on that. Yeah, I, I pride myself on being fair, and you know, brought my kids up the same way. You know, treat people the way they treat you, and you know, you got to try and keep your word. If you say something, you got to try and do it and follow it through. Growing up here with the as an Italian Australian, you know, did you face any racism and that sort of stuff as you were growing up? Oh, look, you know, as a kid growing up, I used to cop wag and you know all that stuff. Day and all that as a kid growing up, and you know, I was forever getting in the fights and because I wouldn't cop it, you know, and, and uh, yeah, and then, you know, the Chinese, I think, come out and they started giving it to them or the Indians or whatever, and it, the Italians got a bit of a rest for a while, but it was sort of, it was, you know, hard as a kid growing up. I used to cut up, cut, put up with a lot of that nonsense. 
my parents are English immigrants. They came out in 1965 from Liverpool, England. Four kids born in Liverpool, England, me and my brother born in Liverpool, Australia. <laughs> and we had the Mamalides and, and the Mamalides out of Liverpool and they just put us up. And we've always had this great affiliation with the Italian people. The Italian people are just beautiful people that welcome people. Oh, I think there's good and bad in every race, I've got to be honest. Mm. Uh, I know lots of people from all walks of life and all sorts of nationalities that are beautiful people, so... Yeah, and they've got a bit of a... Like, I, I can remember, like, you know, they've got a, a bit of a, a, a bad rap, the Italians, when it comes to organised crime and everything. There was always this... Mafia stuff. Yeah, all of that mafia stuff. Well, they're trying to get the eyes off a ball, I guess. I mean, the only mafia I know are up the top end of... Burke Street, their Parliament House, and um, and they can make laws and change them overnight. So, um, yeah, as far as mafia concerned in this country, that's the only ones I know. Biggest mafia I've seen at the moment is Hillsong Church. Scott Morrison was in there. Police commissioners were in there. Mate, they're getting the head of the church, Brian Houston, was under investigation for covering up child sex offences. I've never heard of that. Hillsong Church. Church. Yeah, they get a $43 million grant whilst he's under investigation. The Boys Club. Yeah, one of them ones. Mm. Mate, you you love a boxing. Where did it come from? Was it like your dad or... Because there's been some great Italian boxers over the years. Yeah, look, I I was walking along in North Melbourne one day and I seen a boxing gym and and I thought, like I said, I, I loved Muhammad Ali as a kid growing up. And I thought I wouldn't mind giving this a crack. And I walked into this gym and they told me I was, an, I was a southpaw, which I wasn't. Mm. And I went back a couple of days later and the trainer wasn't there anymore and I wandered around North Melbourne and found this other gym, which was Kevin Mortison's gym. I found my way into that place and loved it, you know, and stayed there for many, many years. And What role did Kevin play in your life? Oh, Kevin, he was a beautiful person. Like I said, he was a trainer. They used to run a gambling club upstairs on top of the uh, gym, which... You know, being inquisitive as I was, I'd see all these people going up all the time and I'd always be asking questions, what's going on? Where are they all going? And, and no one would tell me. And in the end, I found out. And uh, I found my way up there myself and ended up being a part of it. So, But Kevin Kevin was very influential in, in my life. Hmm. Um, he always tried to advise me the right way, you know, like make every post a winner. You know, I went and bought a block of land in Warrandot for argument's sake for... I think I paid $70,000 for it at the time. And he said, don't buy one. He said, buy 10. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, put 7000 on each of them and pay it off and you'll have 10. I thought, no, I don't like that idea. I'd rather pay one off. But if I had a listen, I would have been a multi-millionaire at a very early age because they, mm. they went through the roof. But that sort of thing was the advice he'd always sort of try and give me, you know. Yeah, that's fatherly advice, isn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. He was a beautiful person. And do you think that boxing was one of those things that give you the, the discipline? Like, you know, when you're a kid, you're wayward. Like, you know, I was reading in your book about what, you know, the stuff that you got up to and do you think it was the thing that gave you the, uh, that discipline that you are really lacking? There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, in today's paper, actually, funny thing, there's a story about uh, a politician that's, that's starting a, a new political wing, the Freedom Party or whatever, and he asked me if I'd support boxing in schools and whatever. And I said, look, I'd, I'd love to be an advocate of that because I believe in it. I believe that, that children should have some form of you know, whether it be boxing or karate or or whatever self-defence it is, it it should be in all the schools and it'd get them off their computers and stop them from going wayward and getting involved in drugs and whatever. I believe it'd be a big step in the right direction. So that was in today's paper, funny thing, but I do support it wholeheartedly. Yeah, I'm I'm massive and I've seen so many people 
get out. Like Angelo Hyde has got the boxing gym up there at, at Coogin on the border and you can walk in there and, and I've seen so in particular there's a guy up there I won't mention his name because he's a real private guy and he's come out of jail it's kept him in, it's kept him out of trouble it's kept him employed it's kept him focused I used to see boxing programs in jail Johnny Lewis used to come oh, he's come in a few times brought Costa and the influence that that had on people and them guys like Costa coming in uh, Justin oh, Rousel Justin Rousel coming in and them sort of guys talking to these guys and, 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 and telling them what it takes to be a top blind boxer, and, and you see these blokes getting out, and they had the Costa come out with a tennis ball with a headband and a tennis ball, and these guys making it. These, well, it's, it's just so cool that influence that someone like that can have. And, and the beautiful thing about it, them trainers, you've mentioned Angelo Hyder and and uh, Johnny Lewis and people of that calibre, they're just special people. They they don't do it for the money. No, you know they couldn't care less about the money. They do it because they love what they're doing, and, and they love uh, seeing you know, goodness come out of people that have gone wayward and whatever and, you know, it's just lovely what they do. It's funny, the fifth bloke I've had on the show and, and Johnny Lewis has been a theme of the whole show, you know what I mean? He's just he's champion. That, just that influential and I'm going to interview Jeff Fennick next and then Johnny after that. Jeff's a very close friend of mine. I love Jeff and uh, Johnny Lewis also, I think. I'd love to hear that podcast. Yeah, he brings out the best, eh? Mate, I know plenty about you, right? Like, you know... And I know, and it's all good. And um, how does it feel when you see in the media and you're described as an underworld figure? That article in the paper today, funny thing, was, that was the headline: "Underworld figure supports boxing, whatever." Look, it annoys me. It annoys me because I, I don't think I am an underworld figure. I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm a colourful character. There's no doubt about it. I know everyone in Australia. No problem. I mean, I, I do my own thing. I, I spend more time with my family and my grandkids and than I do with anyone else. Uh, it, it, it annoys me, it does, and I've tried hard to stop them from doing it, but unfortunately it's not the journalists. They, they do their best not, not to introduce all that sort of stuff, but it's the editors. Mm. Uh, they like to put a spin on it, and people read the papers, and, you know, that's the reason they do it. But, look, in uh, answering your question... I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it, but there's not much I can do about it. Like when I was, I was telling a few people, I'm, I'm interviewing you today, and everyone's, what a good bloke. I've, I've heard of That's stories. Nice, isn't it? Yeah, I've heard of stories where you've, you know, you've helped people get their money back, that, that the courts were never going to help them get it back. You'll hear plenty about it. I mean, it just depends what suburb you go to. <laughs> <laughs> As, you know, there's, there's good and bad there's about everyone, you know what I mean? In your book, I, I when I was reading the Graham Kinneborough stuff, I could I could feel the love you had for that bloke. Yeah, look, Graham was a, a father image to me, and uh, I love a man. Mm. He used to come over to my place every Sunday, and we'd go and have lunch or whatever. And yeah, he was just a beautiful person. He he rubbed shoulders with everyone, you know, politicians, judges, you know, just incredible who he mixed with. Mm. Uh, and the funny thing about him, if he was with you, and I bumped into him, and I'd say, "Have you seen Russell lately?" He'd say, "I haven't seen him." He was just that sort of bloke. He wouldn't tell his left hand what his right hand was doing. And uh, I admired him for that, but you could say anything to him and it would be the end of it. You'd never, he'd never repeat it. Um, and he was just a bloke that a lot of people trusted. And like I said, he was like a father to me. I loved him. I miss him. Mm. You know, this gangland war bullshit that they all go on about. Uh, that's when I got involved when that happened. Prior, that had nothing to do with me. Yeah. In one of the Underbelly series, I've seen this thing and it's about the Canes or Ray Chuck or whatever and there's this... Is that true, that scene where you're... Punk- and they, 
it's the Canes, right? The Canes, are, and um, you're punching the bag, and they say, who's that? Is actually young Mick Gatto. Were you ever training at the Canes? I used to train at Kevin Waterson's, and Brian Kane used to come in there all the time. Yeah. He did, and um, I developed a friendship with him there. Yeah. Uh, and he used to come and watch me spar and all that. Mm. I can't remember the actual footage of that, but, yeah, they used to come into the gym, yeah. What do you think of the betrayal of yourself in, in the underbelly series? Look, the bloke that played my part, Simon Westerway, I, I sort of, you know, used to keep in touch with him and he, he'd say to me, look, Mick, you're going to sit down and you're going to say, what a great show, but it's all bullshit. Yeah. Because 90% of it was not true. They'd done it for public viewing and, and obviously, you know, they've sort of embellished it all and a lot of the stuff in it wasn't true. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, eh? Exactly right. And, it, and in your book, uh, in, part of the opening part of your book is that's why you wrote the book to sort of... I wrote, they give me no choice, to be honest, Russell, because... Um, the producers of, um, I can't think of a production company, but anyway, they were going to do the Mick Gatto movie with my input or without. They were going to do it with public knowledge and what the police tell them. Um, so they give me an option. They said, either you write a book or we'll just do a movie of what we know. So I went and spoke to a few lawyers, friends, family and whatever, and everyone was of the same view that you should be in charge of your own destiny. You know, don't let them paint you in a bad way so so that you know made me decide that yes I'll put this book together and um, you know fortunately that it wasn't that exciting enough to do a movie about I guess so they didn't go on with the movie which was good so you know. I loved your book mate I passed it around to everyone it was one of the better books I've ever read really yeah, good look, a few people have said that I'm embarrassed about a few things in it but how does it feel to because to write a book? I've had a book written about myself, and you've got to be vulnerable in a book. You've got to show some vulnerability, and I picked up on some of your vulnerabilities. And there's parts of that book of yours that I can feel the passion when you talked about Graham, when you talk about your family, when you talked about your son Michael passing. Yeah, well, I had two sons that passed actually, but uh, yeah, look, you know, uh, you're right in what you're saying, but you know, what can you do? That's but, that's but, life. But it's you a come from you come from a school. Like, you come from an old school where it's weak to show emotions, it's to show anything. Well, I'll tell you what, it might have used to, it used to be like, but now I watch a sad movie and I've got tears rolling out of my eyes, I can't believe it. Yeah. I, uh, I've mellowed, I, I can't, I really can't believe it. That's um, good, mate, isn't it? It's yeah, well, it is good, but, you know, I, yeah, I can get emotional quite easy these days, unfortunately, but, you know, I guess we're all human, that's life, and as we get older, things change. And I, for me, I, mate, I've just done a podcast and they, over, over at um, the True Crime and, mate, they talk about some of the stuff. I went, mate, she got me straight away. Gets me straight away. And you know what? For myself, I find that stuff healing. Yeah, fair enough. I find that stuff healing as a, as a man and I try to encourage other men to be like that and other people hearing you talk like that, it's encouraging. A bloke with your reputation and saying, you know what I mean, it's okay to feel like that's great. Yeah, well, look, you know, my reputation precedes me but I guess... It's not quite the way it looks. Mm. You know? and it's always been blown out of the water and made bigger than what it is. You, you just you said that there's a few, a couple of things that you were embarrassed about in your book. What, what, what were they? Going to jail, firstly, and I mean dragging my family through the mud in 1982. Uh, a little bit embarrassed about that. Like I just described, you know, people had come into the house to visit and my mother would grab their bags and run away and hide them, you know. I'd turn the house upside down looking for them, you know, so we could go and have a bit. But I was only a kid then. Yeah. Them sort of things, it's embarrassing, you know, when you look back. 
and, and you speak about it, it is embarrassing. Yeah, I, read, I read that and I was really surprised. I really was with you, but I was surprised that you, of the bloke that you are today, that you're willing to tell people about that. Well, if you're going to do something, like I said, you've got to do it right. It's no good pulling punches and... And, and I just feel that if you're going to do it, well, you've got to tell the truth. And tell the whole truth. That's what you've yeah. done. We used to go visiting people and they'd say, quick, lock the doors of Gatto's there. And I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, we're only 10, 12 yeah. years of age. Yeah. Uh, but silly things like that. You described yourself as a villain. Can that ever change? Well, it has changed. Mm. Um, when I say I was a villain, I was, you know, young, only kid. I used to do silly things and, you know, like, you know, rob relations or people would come into the house and I'd go and go through their purses or whatever and get the money so I can go and gamble, you know. As a kid, that's what I meant, you know, mm. being a villain. I, I wasn't a vindictive villain. I was just, you know, just young, silly, mad gambler, I guess. I, I relate to that because, you know what I mean, I, I man, I was one of those people in my neighbourhood that everyone said to stay away from and I just sent, like yourself, I had a sense of, of uh, you know, I had that pride and that sort of stuff but, but today things are a lot different for me. Man, I got described as a judge recently as a community asset. Oh, you probably are. <laughs> wow, man. Mate, you've had some sadness in your life too, you know what I mean? I have. Michael, your son, passed away and, man, I... I I choked up when I read that, I'll be honest. From that, you developed a passion for the children's hospital. Yeah, look, my first son, he died of cot death. Mm. He was two days old and uh, it was pretty tough then. Uh, me and my wife, you know, sort of really struggled with that. Uh, we look back now and we think, well, we wouldn't have had our other son, Damien, which is our oldest. Mm. Um, if that first son was born, everything was fine because we probably wouldn't have jumped back into it so quick, but... The worst thing that happened to me was my other son that committed suicide, Justin, he was four years ago. And that was, um, he had mental health issues and he used to use a lot of substances and all that, and, uh, drugs and things of that nature. And, uh, yeah, that sort of hit me hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, we think about every day, every moment of every day. You know. I, I've heard of your son being in Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he'd been to a few. Yeah. I, I'm an ex-$1,500 a day heroin addict and, um, you know, and, and man, I, I know that struggle. I know that struggle. I know through my own struggle, you know what I mean, how that st stuff has... And that tortures you. Yeah. yeah We'd done everything with him. We'd sent him overseas a couple of times uh, to Bali and the rehabs and I think he'd been to about five rehabs. Yeah. And, and the last one, I've got to be honest, I thought... He was cured. He came back. He was adamant. He was saying all the right things, doing all the right things, and I really believe that you know this time he's all right. Yeah. And then you know took going out to a couple of clubs with his friends or whatever, and obviously someone offered him something, and you know he just fell into it again. So yeah. You know we used to go to uh, all the uh, meetings and all yeah. that, um, yeah. and sort of talk. We look. We tried everything. Yeah. With him and, and, you know, I look back now and I think, you know, if only I was there at this time or if only this or only that, but there was no way out of it. He, he, he had it in his mind, that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. And he used to openly say it, that he was going to commit suicide. He'd had enough. So I, I don't sort of blame myself, you know, that I could have done more. Mm. Uh, and, and me and my wife and family, I think we'd done everything we possibly could have. So, 
you know. I miss him dearly, but what can you do? That's the cards we're dealt, unfortunately. I was at the fights about six weeks ago with uh, an ex-fighter called Brendan Batty, Bomber, and everything fine. Saturday night, we're sitting around getting photos and laughing and joking, and on the Monday, he went and killed himself. No way. That's the thing. I've lost a brother through suicide, and I know the effects that it have on families, you know what I mean? And it's crazy, this whole thing. It's Mate, a fine line. It is. Sanity and insanity is a fine line. I've been there, Mick. I've been there. I've been there. Mm-hmm. Mate, I had... I was good to go. I'd made peace with it. The last time I got pinched for an arm robbery, I was going to knock myself. And, and um, But what I say to people who are going, who have suicidal ideology, is put it off for one day and there's a fair chance you won't do it. Yeah. And that's what I did, you know. I, I, mate, I, I went to prison. I was going to, the coaxial cable, I was going to hang myself with it. had been cut down. Someone had vandalised it. I, I thanked those guys, whoever they were. I thank them. And I... A few things rolled out and I never did it. And today, I, I, you know, I've got a beautiful life. So anyone listening, thinking about suicide or anything, put it off for one day, phone a friend, do something, reach yeah. out. And the worst part about it, I mean, you know, they think that that's the end and, you know, it's all done and dusted, but it's the people around them that suffer and they'll continue to suffer until the day they die. So They pass the baton. The effects it has on family and friends is just horrendous. Mm. Um, so... You're a passionate man about your family, aren't you, mate? I am. Yeah, I mean, family's everything to me. You know, the rest don't really matter, to be honest. Money comes and goes, everything comes and goes, but family, unconditional love, mate, can't beat it. Can't beat it. I've finally got it. Got a champion, a Serbian princess. Yeah, Uh, you're lucky, good on you. Cheryl, your wife Cheryl, mate, your loyal, loving wife Cheryl, you two are an amazing team. Yeah, she's been my backbone in a lot of cases, I guess, and... uh, you know, we've been together, I think, 45, 46 years coming up. Married, I think, um, which you don't hear of too often these days. We've had our ups and downs. We've had our rough patches and all that, like everyone. But, um, yeah, she's a, she's a good woman. Uh, anyone that meets her, they fall in love with her because she just wants to help everyone and, and, and do all the right things by everyone. I mean, she's just, you know, just such a good woman. We've started this Autism Foundation, as you're well aware of. Um, Where does that come from, Nick? Look, my oldest grandson, he's 14, he's autistic. We decided to do this foundation and put our heart and soul into it and leave some sort of legacy and hopefully help autistic children and, and, and people in the community that are suffering with this. Every person I come across that has you know, been in touch with autistic children, tell me what a blessing they are. They are, they're beautiful children, really. They're, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, my grandson, he's 14, he's a big lump of a kid, he's bigger than me, beautiful-looking boy, and um, his heart's just so pure. Mm. He has got no bad in him whatsoever, and, you know, a little baby would go up and pull his eyes or his hair or whatever, he wouldn't do anything about it, you know, just just so pure, it's just so beautiful, you know, they really are beautiful. They'd be a big part of you that one likes to protect that. Yeah, well, you know, we all want to protect their own. I'm not, not do anything for any of them, you know, mm. in a heartbeat. There's no doubt about that. I, I see that. I see it in people. I, I see, like, whether it be some bloke in jail who comes in and got a certain part of innocence about him, and I go, man, don't ever lose that. Yeah. That's that's just beauty, and there's not enough of it in this world. Fair enough. In your, in your book, I remember... You, that you come across the girl who was the Hell's Angels girlfriend who was the heroin addict or anything like that. You would have seen the start of the heroin epidemic in Australia. Yeah, look, I've always hated drugs, I've got to be honest. Um, uh, that girl you're referring to, her name was Midnight. I was only a kid, I think I was only 
18 years of age or whatever, and uh, I was tangled up with her, and she was as rough as guts. And uh, no, good girl, but uh, and she used to go one of the leaders of the Hell's Angels at the time. But I used to see her sort of shooting up in her neck and on hands and webs of her feet and all that. And then she'd go and vomit everywhere and all that, and it used to make me sick, you know. And I'd think, how could they do this to themselves, you know? But it's just an addiction. There's nothing they can do about it, you know? I mean, it's not them. Were you ever tempted to indulge in any drugs or anything like that? As a kid growing up, I tried marijuana hmm. a number of times. So I didn't really like it. I, hmm. I got in a fight one night and I was a bit stoned, and it sort of cured me hmm. not to do it again. Tried cocaine once as a kid, didn't like it. Um, I've always sort of veered away from it. Cocaine gives me bionic hearing. I can hear cockroaches walking on. No fun. <laughs> it was just that one drug that was no oh, fun for me. Thank God it didn't affect me that way because I might have liked it. Yeah. Mate, the, the beginning of these, you know, so-called uh, ganglion wars, because every time it comes up, your name is connected to it. Well, probably because I'm the only one still walking around, I guess. The rest of them are either dead or in jail. Yeah. But look, at th- those times there, I mean, they've all been blown out of proportion. Um, they connected like 25 or 28 murders or whatever with the so-called gangland war. Well, a lot of them had nothing to do with it, you know, really, and they just sort of threw them in just for, you know, make it look more interesting, I guess. And, and look, I believe the police at the time could have cleaned it up pretty quick. Uh, the reason why I say that is that they had a whiteboard with a list of names on it, potential people that were going to be killed, and then people, sure enough, were getting killed. Hmm. Well, I mean, you don't have to be a, a road scholar to work that out. You just saturate surveillance around them people and, you know, that would be the end of it. You'd, you'd catch who was involved or whatever and, and it'd put an end to it, but they just sat back and let it happen because uh, it was criminals killing criminals, I guess, and, and, and no one sort of really cared until until Jason Moran and, and, and Barbara got killed in front of 200 kids at Auskick that the public sort of went crazy about and they formed Piranha and they decided to clean it up. But prior to that, they didn't, they didn't really care. Yeah. So it was the case. We had the same thing in Sydney in the, in the 80s where they just didn't care. I, don't, I think a lot of them went unsolved. Yeah. Did you ever meet Flannery, Mr Renekill? I, I did. I met him a couple of times at Mickey's Disco in St Kilda and he, he was very unassuming. I've got to be honest, when it all came out that, you know, rent to kill and this, that, and the other. I couldn't believe it. I thought, gee, he's really, you know, when I reflect back, I really thought he was just insignificant. Yeah. I've got to be honest, but, you know, I didn't mind the bloke. And yeah. He just seemed like just an ordinary bloke. But, you know, when you hear all this other stuff about him down the track, just couldn't believe it. I've got a company called The Voice of a Survivor, and we help survivors of institutional sexual abuse. And some of these real bad guys like him, him, Nettie Smith, all of them went through institutions where there was barbaric, often sexual and physical abuse, and they be, they create these sort of people. Well, that's probably why. I mean, there's an ad on TV that you've probably seen, the father yelling out to the kid, go and get me a beer, you know, and he keeps running backwards and forwards to the fridge, and, and then, you know, years later you see this kid grow up and he's doing the same thing with his kid. In a generation. Well, it's exactly the same thing, you know. I mean, they've, they've been through that barbaric situation that you're talking about and brings it out in them I guess I don't know how it works but it's not very nice no it's not it's not some they, they, yeah what a happen man I, I through my own experience man it, it ruined my life it took a long time to get back there but um through people talking about it and whatever I mean it's 
slowly getting eradicated a bit. I mean, you know, the, the priests and churches have been brought into, you know, into line and, 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 and I think that, you know, through talking about it and people like yourself getting up and, and speaking about their experiences or whatever has helped a lot because it stopped it. What we're trying to do is change the culture of men not speaking about this sort of stuff. And if we can change that culture, like we, we talk about and what we do, a pedophile's greatest weapons is victim silence and shame. You know, so we get people talking about this sort of thing, we eliminate their silence and shame and eliminate their power. So that, that becomes, it becomes ri- uh, more risky for them to try doing it. It's a great tool against, against it, and I, I, I agree with it wholeheartedly. Moving on, the Andrew Benjamin thing. Talk, talk us through that. I'd been trying to uh, get a hold of him for a while because I knew that he, he sort of jumped ship a bit and he was running around with Carl and whatever. And he was in your team previously? Well, there was no team, but he was in our company. Yeah, yeah. He never made any money from me. I yeah. didn't deal in drugs or whatever. Yeah. And he was always chasing that dollar because he always used to ask me, you know, what can I do or whatever, so I get your job in the building site or whatever. But it didn't interest him. He was always looking for the big money and whatever. Um, so I was always trying to get a hold of him, couldn't get a hold of him. And anyway, uh, one day I rang him and he answered the phone and sure enough, he was just up the road and he, he I didn't know that, but he appeared at, at this place and we, you know, went out the back to have a check because I heard that he had something to do with killing Graham. And I was convinced he had something to do with it, whether he, you know, shot him or wasn't actually involved in killing him, but he knew about it. He knew that it was going to happen. And I had a chat to him and one thing led to another and uh, I remember his eyes spinning in his head and then he just produced this gun from the back of his pants and we struggled over it. I grabbed it and, you know. He wasn't, he wasn't a big bloke, was he? he? He was small, but he, he was quick. Yeah. And uh, he was a good little fighter, actually, when he was younger. Yeah, he fought as a kickboxer and a boxer, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. But I think at the time he was a little bit sick. He had pancreatic problems. Yeah. I think that's probably the only reason I got away with him, I guess, but... I look at guys like that when they develop things, and I wonder if it's their karma. Yeah, it could be because, uh, you know, he, I, I put that on him and I said, he had something to do with killing Graham. And he said, Mick, I wouldn't do that. You're my friend. And I said, well, Dibra and, and, and Calipolitis, whatever, were your friends too? You killed them. Your childhood friends, you killed them. And he goes, oh, they were dogs. They deserved it or words to that effect. Hmm. I said, well, you can't be trusted, mate. I don't want you in our company. And that's when he, you know, his eyes started to spin a bit. Hmm. And, and what happened happened. Yeah. Was it, was, was it a sense of relief, Nick, that, that that bloke was out the scene? At the time, you know, I mean, I, I thought the police had come and they'd assess it all and they'd let me go. Hmm. But, you know, obviously they locked me up for 14 months. And it was harrowing times for me because I couldn't protect my family where I was. I was always worried, but I, I feel sorry for the bloke. I mean, it's unfortunate what happened. And, and I think he was using the product or something himself. It wasn't the bloke I knew, you know. It reported that he was a heavy-duty cocaine yeah. user. So, look, in saying, was I happy that, look, I wish it never happened because mm. uh, it dragged my family through the mud and, uh, and put me in the public spotlight. I always sort of stayed out of the spotlight and done my own thing with gambling and all that. You know, it sort of made me a household name. And I uh, couldn't go anywhere without someone saying, can I get a photo, can I get an autograph, can I do this kind of... It sort of annoyed me, but there's nothing I can do about it. How much had jail changed from the first time you'd been there to that time? It changed a lot because the first time I was out in the open yards and whatever and 
a mix of everyone. And the second time I was locked up in solitary confinement, 23 hours a day, and I'd only come out one hour a day to clean my cell and exercise, make phone calls. So it was it was a lot different. But in hindsight, they probably done me a favour because uh, I knew my my uh, brief chapter and verse. I knew every word in it. And when we fronted court, you know, and uh, during the trial, I used to write notes. I'd give them to the screws, and they'd run down and give it to the lawyer. And you know, because the lawyers obviously they they do a good job, but they don't un- understand it like you understand it. Yeah. Um, so it helped me a lot in that way. But the difference in jail between the first time and the second time was just unbelievable. It was like Hannibal Lecter stuff when the second time I was there. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, like I, I, I first went to jail in 1982 as a 16 year old, and um, I've been out of jail five years now, and just the the attitude of these young blokes. I think they've done nothing wrong, and they're in there because they've been good blokes. Mm. You know, and I just, I oh mean, I, I struggled. That was the hardest part. It weren't the screws, it weren't the conditions or anything. It was the people I had to surround myself with. It was horrible. Well, I didn't have that because I, you know, I couldn't mix with anyone. Uh, but the hardest part for me was that I had no contact with anyone, and my family come and see me through glass. Yeah, all box visits, yeah? There was no contact visits. Yeah. I, what was their reasoning for that? I was saying it was uh, a security reason. Yeah. You know, like a priest came in to see me and said, and you can't see him. And I said, why? High security, you can't see him. A priest, for God's sake, you know? So yeah. things like that. It was just, look, what the reason they'd done that, they tried and break you. And, and they had a lot of success with that because a lot of the people, they're all on Carl's team anyway, mm. they all rolled over on him. Mm. And it was for that reason. They locked up 23 hours a day. But out of it Brilliant. all, really, you're the good guy out of this. You, you sort of, you put an end to the, like I say that from from the heart, like, you know, you, you stopped this bloke that was doing it all, basically. Well, the murders went on after that. Mm. I mean, they killed Mario Condello after that. He was a good Mario friend of yours, doing the last one. Yeah, he was a good mate of mine. Yeah, but look, in Sonnet, you're probably right. You know, probably, it did stop a lunatic, and he was a lunatic, and he was good at it. Yeah. And I think I was lucky that I finished in front of him. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you finished in front of him too, mate. Yeah, or so am I. There'd probably be another 30 dead by now, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, such is life. In, in, so in that 15 months, mate, you, I'll tell you what, you look fit. I remember the... Mate, I used to train, locked up 23 hours a day in a cell, so I used to shadow box for hours. The screws would come past and they'd be, you know, yelling out to me, you know, uh, what was that fighter's name? The one that done all 20 or 30 years jail. Rubicane, Hurricane and Carter. Carter. Yeah, Ruben uh, Carter, yeah. Uh, they'd come and pass the cell and say, Hurricane, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I was pretty fit for that reason. And How much weight did you lo- had lost then? I lost 30 kilos. Yeah. Uh, so I went in about 135 and I was down about 105. Yeah, you look fit. So I remember. I'm 150 now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mate. Just talk for us the the court process. Who was your who you had Robert Richter? Is that correct? I had Robert Richter. He is a beautiful man, uh, greatest advocate. He he takes the trials personally. Like he'd come in, you know, and he'd say things like, "Oh, I had a sleepless night last night thinking about this, or whatever," you know. And just a beautiful person. He's just the greatest advocate. You know, he mightn't have won all the cases he he run, but I tell you what. I love him. He, he he was just unbelievable. He used to come into the, the jail and, and sit me up on a, a chair and cross-examine me like a, a prosecutor would and things like that. 
Did you jump in the box in your own trial and give I evidence did, for yourself? I did. He, he advised me not to. And there was a, a junior lawyer called Mark Taft, who's now a judge, and they both said, you know, look, we think you're a mile in front and we don't think you should get in the box. And I said, what's the downside? And they said, well, the downside is that the jury doesn't know what happened in that room. And I said, well, I want them to know what happened in that room because otherwise they're going to think I'm guilty, you know. You know, long story short, I, I demanded that I wanted to give evidence, you know. And he, he said to me, Robert, he said, look, he said, I've only ever asked one bloke to give evidence. And I said, I don't agree with it. He said, I think, I think they will paint you as black as black can be. I said, mate, I can handle it. I said, I, I want to do it. That's ballsy. How long did the Crown keep you in the witness box for? Two days, I think. Yeah. A bloke called Jeff Horgan, who was such a conniving, I'm going to call him a rat because he was a rat. He made things up and... And uh, they just tried so hard to convict me at any any expense. It didn't they didn't care whether it was right or wrong or whatever. It was just the first of the gangland wars uh, trials, and they just wanted to win it at any expense they could, you know. And luckily, we got through the break. Mate, what a relief! How, how long were the jury out before we they give you verdict? The jury was out for about eight hours. Wow, yeah. that's quick. But the funny thing is, I've got to tell you, prior to the trial, we we're just starting the trial and. And Robert come down, uh, the Supreme Court there, come and see me down in the cells. And he said, look, he said, we got a deal from the prosecutor. And I said, yeah, what is it? He said, if you nod your head, you'll get five years. And I Because I'm manslaughter? Yeah, manslaughter, yeah. Mm. You'll get five years. And I said, in writing? He goes, yeah, in writing. And he goes, I really seriously think you should think about it. Because if you go down, you're going to get 25 and a bottom. And he said, you know, you should seriously think about it. I said, okay, I have. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I said Sydney or the bush. He <laughs> says, what do you mean? I said, mate, I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm going to beat this. We're going to trial. He said, are your you sure? Yeah. I said, yeah, I'm sure. Because your hand was the truth. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not going to sit there for another five years under them conditions, mm. like Hannibal Lecter stuff. You know, I, I believed I'd get through the break, and I, I believe that, that no jury in the world could convict me because there was just too much doubt. Did much come up about him, what, what his past was? or Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they brought up different things about him. Yeah. Not how many murders he was involved in or whatever, but different stuff was brought up. There was one funny thing that the police done a reenactment of, of him carrying a gun. They had this tall copper, fat copper, with a gun in the front of his pants and you could see the gun sticking out, you know? So... I knew at the time that they were going to do that, so I got Robert to go and see a bloke I knew at a gun shop in North Melbourne. I said, go and find an, an actor or a, a model the same size as Veneman, get him to carry a 38 in the back of his pants like he did and see if we could see it. So we'd done the same reenactment with someone the right size and weight as Veneman, and there was no way you could see he was carrying a gun, but it, the one that they showed you, this fat fellow with the gun sticking yeah. out, you clearly see there was a gun there, so it was a bit of a That's bit of a joke. The jury yeah. sort of had a chuckle about that. But I was lucky that I, I knew they were going to do that um, so we could retaliate. You know? Beautiful. Master stroke. Getting found not guilty, mate. What was that feeling like? Mate, look, I've got to be honest with you. I, I was supremely confident all the way, but the day the jury came out, I was a little bit unsure because a couple of them, they always used to walk out with their head up looking at me and whatever. And when they walked out of that jury room, they all had their heads bowed. And I thought I was gone, mm. to be honest. So to my relief, it was 
not guilty and thank God. Mate, what was it? Do you have a full, full crowd there watching the whole trial? Would have been full of media, wouldn't it? The trial went for seven and a half weeks and my family and friends that supported me were there every day. There was people, friends of mine that travelled from Sydney, they come there and stay the week for seven weeks, they were there every day, old blokes. The day of the, the jury went out, they had all my family, only my immediate family were there behind me. The rest of my family and friends all had to go upstairs and the whole room was full of police, piranha and, and uh, journos. And I remember walking out there thinking, this is like the, the Catholic bloke they had, they had, you know, when they took him out to the lions, you know. Yeah. Uh, that was a feeling I had, you know, that, that I was a sacrificial lamb, you know. Wow. They were all looking for a bit of blood, you know. That jury, man, to go only be, that's a short, they only were out for eight hours. I've got to tell you a, a funny thing. When we picked the jury out, there was a woman on the jury that, that got up and said, I've got to make it known that one of the piranha police that are involved in the case is a good friend of mine. So I said to Robert, I said, but we can't go forward with this jury. He goes, Mick, it's a good jury. I said, how can I win? I can't win. I said, she's going to. So I'm guilty for sure because she's got her friends at Piranha Policeman. He goes, Mick, trust me, it's a good jury. So I took his advice. You have many challenges on your, in your jury selection? Um, uh, there was a few. There was three or four challenges, I think. Mm. Yeah, she was certainly one that, that I was concerned about, but yeah. he ended up being right. You, know? you get out, you're out the front. I remember the media. there was a media scrum for you, weren't there? Yeah, and it was that way for many, many months after and... They used to sit on my lawn, you know, 20, 30 of them. Is that when you're pelting the eggs in them? I love yeah, that. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I threw three eggs and hit two targets, so it wasn't too bad. Crack shot, mate. But that was over the Candelo murder. He'd been killed and next minute they're at my house, you know. And this was after you got released, yeah? It was. Yeah. 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 Wow. Mm. When you were in solitary lockdown for that 15 months, was it? 14 and a half months. Yeah. Mate, how was your mental health? I, I really breezed through it, I've got to be honest. Um, it didn't really bother me, but like I said before, the only part that did was that there was no human contact. My kids had come in, my wife had come in, there'd be tears rolling out of their eyes because they couldn't sort of hug me or touch me or whatever. That was the hardest part. Um, apart from that, it didn't bother me. You can't comfort people. How did that feel for you? Yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough because that depend on friends and family. My brother actually had a, played a major role in all that. Yeah, it was pretty tough. It and really you're a big, and, and big part of who you are, you're a protector. Well, I like to protect the ones I love. Yeah, and uh, I think we're all a bit that way. And you and you talked about part of that uh, being in jail. You you felt you know you felt frustrated because you couldn't protect. We but did you at the time? expect any repercussions? It was a crazy time them days and I mean a lot of silly things happen. You know I used to listen to the news because I, I bought a little radio in there and I used to listen to it every hour. Naturally you know I was worried that something was going to happen to my family or whatever and there's nothing I could do about it. Mm. And I found out after I got out of jail that uh, you know they'd rung the police on many time, many occasions saying you know there's a drug crop in my house and things of that nature and luckily the police uh, formed the conclusion that it was a crackpot trying to cause me grief. Yeah. And they didn't sort of do anything silly, but, you know, there were certainly attempts to cause my family grief. Yeah. If not physically, uh, otherwise, but they didn't succeed, thank God. And how did that feel to you, mate? How, how, how were you dealing with that? Like I said, there was nothing I could do, and at the time I didn't know about it until yeah. I got out. 
you know, my wife, you know, she wouldn't sort of say too much to me anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, she thought I had enough to sort of worry about. And, um, I, I just used to sort of concentrate on how I can sort of help them financially and I'd do whatever I could. What I love about you, Mick, one of the things I, I've seen you, you've been bankrupt, you bang, you get off your ass and have a crack. You're not a bloke to sit on your ass and, and not do anything, you know? Yeah, well, no one's going to come knocking on your door and say, hey, yeah, yeah, something to chop you out with. I mean, I, I do do that occasionally, but I don't see too many other people that do it. You've got to get out there and, and get amongst it and shake trees, otherwise nothing comes down. You got out of prison. Is this where you, you, you formed the debt collecting thing when you got out of prison? Um, I used to do it before. Um, I've always been approached for different things, you know, like debt collecting or, or, or problems or partner disputes or things of that nature. And, and that all started after they opened up the uh, casino because uh, at the time prior to that I had uh, I used to be involved in all the illegal gambling. I used to run the two up in the back around all them different games in Melbourne and... Uh, you know, once the casino started, it put us out of business. So that's when I found this new role of of uh, mediating and and looking after builders and getting involved with the unions and things of that nature. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So, what's amazing about you is you do it without violence. Well, I, I don't believe in violence, and I, look, I don't believe in you know you don't do to someone what you wouldn't like someone to do to you. Like yeah. you know, I don't normally go to someone's home or annoy their wives or things of that nature. You know, I mean, I wouldn't like someone doing it to me. Where does these... Because you have extraordinary communication skills. Where do they come from? I don't know if I have or I haven't, but I'd imagine that, you know, working in the games all my life, or for 20 years, you know, I worked in the illegal gambling. Um, you've got to be a psychoanalyst to work in them joints anyway because, you know, you're dealing with the drunks and the meek and mild and violent and murderers and... And God knows what, so you developed that strategy, I guess, to deal with all sorts. And I think it probably comes from there. And and mediating and what we do, uh, I work with a bloke called John Curry. I hope I can mention his name. He's my partner, and 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 we work well together. We try and find a happy medium, and uh, both parties walk away with a bit of sour, bit of a sour taste in their mouth. But we end up getting a result, and everyone's happy. Yeah. And the lawyers don't like us because we nip things in the bud and, and they like to stretch it out. So. Yeah, they like to make money, yeah. out, drag it right out, I agree. Mate, you've got this um, a well-known reputation, You, you, the work you do with Charlie Teo, you know, I think there's been, you've raised a million dollars for Charlie. and Yeah, uh, I did. Uh, I love Charlie. Um, it's funny how I met him. Uh, I met him, a, a bloke come and seen me and his name was Charlie Mio, M-E-O. Mm. And uh, he started to tell me about his mother having three months to live. And he was chasing a bloke in Sydney called Charlie Teo, Teo. And I thought he was joking. I said, are you joking? He says, no. He said, my mother's got three months to live and uh, we need to get to him. No one will operate on her. So I put the word out in Sydney of the few people I knew. And about a week later, I get a phone call from a mate of mine. He says, you wouldn't believe it. He said, I'm at a, a function, and he said, that the main guest speaker is Charlie Teo. I mentioned to him that you wanted to talk to him, and, and he said, Mick Gatto. He goes, I know everything about him. I've read all the books. I've done, you know, he, he was quite interested in me. So so he put me on the phone to him. He goes, I can't believe I'm talking to you. I can't believe I'm talking to you. Anyway, long story short, I told him what was going on. He said, send her up here. Um, 
with her uh, x-rays and all that, so I sent her up. They flew up there, and sure enough, he operated on her, and she lived another nine years. But no one would touch her. They give her three months to live, no one would operate on her. He's just a beautiful man. He's saved that many people, and, and now they've made him look like he's a cowboy, and, you know, they've stopped him from operating in Sydney, and people are paying him to travel to overseas to operate in their family and children and friends and that because he can't operate in Australia anymore because of these stupid laws and jealousy and whatever you call it. Old uh, boys club. Mate, it makes me sick. I mean, the man, all he's done is save millions of people and, you know, and prolong their life. I mean, they've got no hope. You know, they've got three months to live with no hope of surviving. Of course they want to have a go at something else, you know. And he was succeeding there. He he was doing so much good with it. And anyway, it, it's sad what's happened. And actually, there was a very uh, a very positive article in the paper about him on the weekend, a two or three page article in the Sydney paper that that supported everything he's done and basically what I've just said. Amazing man, I love those pioneer guys. I love those people that'll take a chance and have a go. It's not enough of it in the Australian culture these days. We're so risk averse. Yeah, no, he he is a beautiful man and uh, he, he's got he's got the people's interest at heart more than the money. Uh, obviously he's got a business to run, he's got to charge people, but but he he takes a lot of pride in what he does. He's actually just developed um, um, a cure for anxiety and 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 very highly for de- depression, which he spoke to me about recently, and it's amazing. I mean, they 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 give you an MRI, they map the brain, they see what part of the brain's not functioning properly. They treat it with magnets over five days, and the results have been just incredible. Anyone with an anxiety problem or depression problem. He's the man to see because his daughter's running a business in Sydney and, and they're doing very well in that area. Pharmaceutical companies are hating because anxiety drugs are just yeah, like, well, billions in it. It's like the petrol, in it, when yeah. they invented water to run cars or whatever? I mean, like, people were killed, weren't they? Yeah. I, I, I follow a lot of what Charlie Teo does. I'm a massive fan. I, I love what he does and he takes a you chance. You get him to do a podcast. I think Mate, I could organise it. Love to do a podcast with him. He's an amazing guy and someone who I... That's, I just love those people that are, are think outside that square. Yeah. That, that's where genius lays. He's beautiful. These days, Mick, you're known a lot for your philanthropic or charity work. Tell us a, a bit about what you've done. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite proud of what I've done, actually. I've, uh, I've raised over four million for, for charities, probably four and a half. Uh, it's funny how it started. I, I think the first one was um, the bushfires in 1988, I think they were. Um, and I was having a barbecue at my home and there was a reporter there from the Herald Sun who's a good mate of mine that passed away. And jokingly, I said, we should put a function on and try and raise a million dollars for the bushfire people, you know, they've been affected by the fires. So he took a photo of us holding these buckets and saying that we're going to raise a million dollars for charity. It sort of put me under the pump. Yeah. I had to do it because it was in the papers. Yeah, so anyway, I thought I've got to do something about this. I thought it made it look like a fool. So we put on a big event at uh, the Atlantic. There was, you know, 1,200 people there. They paid like 10 grand a table. Uh, all the firemen were there. I think we raised, I don't know, I think it was about a million bucks. Yeah, so that's how it started. And from there, we went on to other things, you know. What are the other charities? The Charlie Tao, obviously. The Charlie Tao, we Is raised. that the Black Tie? Yeah, we raised... Uh, I think 900 or 800 
Uh, and then we've done uh, uh, Jerry Lewis, a muscular dystrophy. I've done two for him. What's he like? Jerry Lewis is a guy. Mate, he was a beautiful man. I've got to be honest. Uh, if someone said to me, you know, you know, one day you're going to be rubbing shoulders with Jerry Lewis and tell them they're on drugs because, you know, obviously I grew up as a kid and you probably did too, mm. watching all these shows with Dean Martin and whatever and we used to love all them shows, you know, and to think one day I'd be rubbing shoulders with him was just incredible. But, uh, yeah, beautiful person and... Um, very fiercely loyal. You know, I remember the first time I, I, I raised a million bucks, I, I was at the Rocks in Sydney and I presented him with a big cheque and uh, there was a scrummage of media there and one reporter ran through and he said, do you know what sort of person Mick Gatto is? He said, do you know what sort of person Robert Kennedy is? He said, makes Mick look pretty good. Mm. And he put his arm around me and he, and he said, you know, he's look, helping me and my children. And he kissed me on the cheek, you know, and I thought, How good is very that? loyal. Yeah, so raised 1.4 million there. Yeah, and I've been supporting the children's hospital since I've been a kid. Yeah. Which I've raised a lot of money there. I don't know what it is. Mate, you're a dead set community asset without a doubt. Mate, you have been accused of uh, many crimes over the years and you've been involved with some uh, heavy stuff. Now you're known for giving back to the community with your fundraising everything. Are you trying to sort of even the score, balance it all out? Look, a reporter did say that once, that I was trying to gain respectability and whatever... I'm not trying to do that at all. I mean, um, like I said to you, the, the first time uh, I'd done the fundraiser for the bushfire appeal was was a bit of a joke. Yeah. Uh, we were saying, you know, we should do this and, and we'll put under the pump that made me do it. And from there it escalated from there and, and I decided, well, you know, it's not a bad thing I'm doing. And, you know, I, I got approached. I didn't chase anyone. They approached me like Jerry Lewis approached me through someone else. Uh, Charlie Teo approached me for someone else, you know, them sort of thing. I didn't go looking for it, you know. I decided, why not? Give it a bash and, uh, you know, now we've started this Autism Foundation, as you're aware of, Equal Access for Autism.org.au. It's a uh, not-for-profit organisation. And, look, we're really looking forward to making a difference. Um, there's some very influential people on the board that all bring a lot to the table. And, and I think, you know, I really think we're going to make a difference. I really do. And it's important to you to be making a difference, mate, isn't it? Well, it's important to sort of be trying to do the right thing, and especially when it involves your family. Yeah. I idolise my, my idolise all my grandchildren, but, but Dominic, you know, he's just so pure. Like I said earlier, he's just such a beautiful boy. They named him after me, you know, yeah. and he was the firstborn grandchild. Yeah, so it is important. And how many, grand, how many grandkids you got? five. Yeah. Mate, I'm waiting to get one to couple myself. My 21-year-old's let me down, mate. But anyway. Well, I tell you, when it happens, life will start for you. It's a different ball game. Yeah, it's beautiful. On that note, Nick Gatto, thanks for joining us on the um, Stick Up podcast tonight. It's been an honour and dead set a pleasure. And, and, you know, for me, a dead set dream come true, mate. Oh, mate, you give me a big head, I won't be able to get out the door. But look, it's, uh, it's a privilege and an honour to be asked to be here. And I admire what you're doing. I know you're not doing it for self-gain, you're not doing it to get the message out there and trying to help others that, that, that are in need and whatever, and I'm happy to be a part of that and support you. Thank you, Mick. Thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you.